Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. We have with us one of our colleagues here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance Senior Litigation Council, Russ Ryan. And we invited Russ on the program to crow a little bit about a victory uh, that we earned at the end of last week from the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit. This was an amicus brief that uh, that Russ had, had led the drafting of uh, in the Fifth Circuit in a case called Clark v. Commodity futures trading commission. So uh, I think you were on to talk about this case back when we filed the brief for us, but remind our listeners what what this case uh, is about. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me again, Mark. Um, So the predicted market is what they call a futures market for politics. Basically, you can essentially bet small amounts of money on the outcome of political events in the future. For example, will Trump beat Biden? Uh, one of them apparently was, was whether Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would run for president. And I think <laughs> okay. the the yeas were about 2% and the nays were 97 or 98. But um, in any event. I remember there was one in, in early in 2017, people were betting, would Trump still be president, you know, come January 1, 2018 or something like that. And I, thought, I almost bet on that one because I thought there's no way he's stepping down in year one. But yeah, yeah. so it's, yeah, stepping down isn't his problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for reasons that I confess, I don't really understand because I'm not a commodities law expert for, for whatever reason, markets like this apparently need to be registered with the CFTC as some type of mar- regulated market. Um, because they involve futures, I suppose. And usually the CFTC is regulating things like pork bellies or orange right? juice, orange juice, right. You know, like <laughs> trading places, future, future, uh, future, future contracts on those sorts of things. Uh, so registration is expensive. It's burdensome. It subjects you to uh, a lot more regulation. So in 2014, the operators of this uh, market went to the CFTC and, and asked for and received what's known as a no action letter. Basically the staff says, okay, if you do things the way you describe in this letter, we will not recommend that uh, the commission take enforcement action against you for not registering. Um, so things went fine. They, they, they stood up the market. They, it, it operated for nine years. And then la- last August, almost a year ago, uh, CFTC, CFTC staff abruptly sent them a letter saying, uh, we're withdrawing your no action relief. And you better shut down your market by February 2023 or, you know, you're subject to enforcement action for not registering. And was there a particular action or contract that the predictive market had sold that they identified as being problematic? Um, Later on in the litigation, the CFTC started to explain why they thought they weren't operating as promised. Um, In that withdrawal letter in last August, didn't didn't really say anything specific just said we think you're not complying with 
the original relief, so shut it down. Uh, the predicted people went to the district court and sought an injunction against it. Um, and one of the problems was the district judge just sat on that motion, never decided it. Um, and some of the contracts, yeah, well, probably a lot they, of the contracts extended past, past the, the, the yes, date when they this, wanted. This is important. Yeah. So they said, shut down the market. They have contracts that they have got to go. I mean, you either breach your contract or you get an enforcement. I mean, that is not something right. that anyone wants. Some yeah. of the more popular contracts undoubtedly dealt with the 2024 election. So shutting them down in February 2023 would have wreaked havoc on everyone's expectations. Sure. So when the district court did not decide the motion, uh, I think they they filed the case in September and shortly thereafter or simultaneously asked for a preliminary injunction to freeze things until the case could be decided. Um, for whatever reason, the district court didn't decide it. And so they went to the Fifth Circuit basically saying this is tantamount to a denial of our injunction. So the Fifth Circuit um, put a temporary stay on it while they they heard the merits. They did expedited briefing and argument and so forth. Um, and then a week, uh, I guess it's a week ago, um, came down with a decision basically entirely in favor of predicted. Um, and you know, if we have time, I'll go through some of the, the details of that decision. But in effect, the CFTC lost on virtually every issue imaginable. And uh, yeah, and, yeah, let's let's jump into the issues. The one thing I was going to say before we jumped into the issues is, do I remember correctly? It's the exact same bureaucrat who gave them the letter nine years ago, who then yanked the letter nine years later. So, yes, I mean, these these the same person was in this, <laughs> I believe, the same position. Yeah. But he signed the original one, the original no action letter. And then he signed the revocation. Um, I should also add that after oral argument, and I listened to the argument, and it was clearly going in favor of the predicted people and against the CFTC. Shortly after the argument in the Fifth Circuit, CFTC issued another letter, predicted in March, saying, in effect, uh, we're withdrawing our original letter. Not let me get this right. We're withdrawing the the letter we gave you last August that uh, withdrew your your relief, but we're now denying it for other reasons, you know. And and it was a little bit more um, had, dressed uh, up. Yeah, they they put some actual explanations in, and uh, so then they argued after after doing that that the case was moot and and various other things and. Uh, Judges usually don't like it yeah. for you to come in and try to moot a case after oral argument. That's frowned upon. Yeah. So um, it was a split decision. Um, judges Ho and Duncan were in the majority. Judge Duncan wrote the opinion. Um, and Judge Graves was in dissent, said, I don't, you know, I don't think they showed a likelihood of success on the merits. But um, just to, to give you a sense of how many hurdles the predicted people had to jump over and if they'd lost if they'd missed any of them their their case would have been thrown out basically but first cftc was saying there was no jurisdiction in the appeals court because the district court didn't issue an order so um but the fifth circuit got over that and said look there's case law that says you can go to the you, 
this is tantamount to a denial of your injunction motion. So uh, they got over that one. They said it was moot because of what I just said. They, the, the games they were they playing. They pulled the the second ladder and, and did a third one after argument. The court didn't like that either. Um, they said it was not final agency action. And this is actually a legitimate point of dispute. Is it no action ladder, final agency action? In this case, uh, Judge Duncan believed that it was. Judge Ho's concurrence says, well, we don't really have to decide that now. And he acknowledges there's a circuit split on that. In fact, all the other circuits that have reached the question, I think, say, no, it's not final action. So that's... But here it was going to shut down the business. So it's kind of hard to say that it's not final agency action when it's shutting down the business. Right. Uh, And then CFTC said this is all agency prosecutorial discretion. Uh, It's not reviewable. That got set aside, too. Uh, They raised standing. And and it got set aside, if I remember, Russ, because it, you know, you you have prosecutorial discretion, but you can't just say, uh, you know, yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. I mean, you have to have a more reasoned basis for a, a switcheroo like that. Exactly. Yeah, that's the word we used in our brief. <laughs> and I, I didn't come up with it. It's, <laughs> it's from Fifth Circuit case law. But, um, a regulatory switcheroo. CFTC argued that the plaintiffs here lacked standing because they weren't the actual party. There were, it was a Australian university that actually got the no action letter in 2014. But these were people that were either operating the market or participating in it. And the judges, again, said, no, that, that gives them plenty of standing. And the university did it for research purposes, right? right? Yeah, if right, I recall, yeah, yes, that was it, interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, it's sort of a, a economic uh, uh, experimentation. Right. So having won all those threshold issues, which they had to win every single one of them on, then they had to show that it was arbitrary and capricious, which it was. Uh, they had to show a likelihood of success on the merits, which they did. They had to show irreparable harm, which, again, they did. Um, And then the balance of equities and public interest. But um, it's just sort of a litany of these hurdles that as you read through the decision, you just like if they lose any one of these, it's game over. But they just kept clearing these hurdles. And at the end of the what was the irreparable harm? Why isn't this a money damages issue? Um. I'm trying to remember what the, what the details were on that, but I think it was the dis, just the disruption. There's also, um, I guess, if you lose the, the research, entire business. Well, the other thing was the the the, um, the research value. Ah, uh, yes, was would be completely thrown out of whack because of the disruption in the contracts. So I think that was part of it. Um, but yeah, um, it was it was. But in the end, it was a pretty full victory. I, I was gratified. Because the court actually did, various points emphasize that this was arbitrary and capricious, uh, include because among other things, they did not address the reliance interests that had built up over nine years, and uh, that that was the point we really emphasized in our amicus brief that it's it's okay for an agency to change their mind if there's a good reason. But if there's reliance interest built up based on the prior policy, you can't just ignore that. You need to explicitly consider it in your decision making and either come up with a reason why those interests are not valid or that 
there's a good reason to override them and here that's, that's exactly right and we're gonna have to leave it there russ but thanks okay. thanks for being with us and uh, uh, uh congratulations thank you thank you very much So you think if welcome back to administrative static, I wanted to just uh, follow up on Russ's uh, great explanation of of the Clark v. Uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, case uh, to to give some props to Michael Edney, a partner at Hunt and Andrews Kurth. Um, Mike and I went to, to law school. We overlapped one year and then he clerked for uh, Judge Boggs on the Sixth Circuit uh, shortly after I did. And uh, he was the one who brought this case uh, to us and did a fantastic job uh, with it. As as Russ said, uh, uh, the odds were stacked against you know winning in this case, all the all the hurdles they had to clear. And so uh, so kudos to the to the hunting team for uh, for getting that uh, getting that done. But uh, but John and I wanted to spend this last segment on uh, on another sort of uh topic altogether which is this uh this notion that's been put out there by harvard law professor mark tushnet and political science aaron belk political scientist aaron belkin urging president biden to uh disobey the maga supreme court and ignore uh its its precedents and they they sent this uh, open letter to uh the biden administration uh, uh, with with their explanation of why this would be because Harvard doesn't have any back channels to the administration, apparently. right? Right, right. So, I mean, I guess my first question to you, John, is this anything more than a publicity stunt for these guys? I mean, is, are they serious? Are they? So I don't. I knew Mark Tushnet a little bit. He was at Georgetown, and uh, and I always find him one of the nicest men. <laughs> and he, and I met him in an airport once, and we talked about things, and he's always very gracious but boy when he comes up with something he comes up with a doozy a doozy um so the other thing is um what what really gets me about it is there is one thing about mark tushnet he has been saying for a long time that the supreme court should not be able to rule on everything like this has been something even before this administration i think it is a publicity stunt but uh and he's using the maga angle but he said this he said this 15 years ago that, that we can overrule this. And, you know, on there is a, a, a theory, uh, the Lincoln theory, right, that the Supreme Court, it can't be the only uh, uh, interpreter of the law. And that if, the, if a president thinks something different, he should run his administration differently. But that's not what he's saying here. I don't well, believe. well and, and remember what President Lincoln said is I'm bound by the decision of the court in that case. Correct. But I'm not necessarily bound to sort of make the assumption, which we almost always make, that the, every other similar case would come out the same way. Right. And and, and that is that is something I mean, that's a res- I would say that that has a respectful understanding. And that's been a long time dispute in American letters, uh, in American law. But I don't think what that's what he's doing here. He is saying he doesn't like the Supreme Court just as a body. 
and he and he never has. He believes in this like populist. Uh, the legislature does all this stuff and nobody stops them. Okay. I don't even think the bill of rights stops them. So, well, and he doesn't like the Supreme court decision in the Harvard affirmative correct. action case, right? Correct. I mean, uh, or that. a lot of other of them. Uh, and, and he would be more, I would say Tushnet would be more on the economic lines. Uh, he's more of an old, uh, an old uh, socialist than a, than a, a race guy, but, but nonetheless, you're absolutely right. And and this and because it's Mark Tushnet and because it's Harvard and I don't know the other fellow, it has gotten a heck of a lot of play um, and and a lot more respect than it deserves, because if I mean, this is just like packing the court. Right. right. I mean, all the arguments yes. we made against packing the court would apply here. This is just right. po politics in the rawest sense. And what do you do when there is a new Supreme Court, a new and a new president? How, how does the world run this way is what I'm what is the idea of how the world runs? Well, when these people are in and I don't like them, I don't listen to it. But then I make everyone else in the country listen to the Supreme Court when I like it. Yeah. Uh -uh, doesn't work that way. Yeah, this is much closer to uh, to Andrew Jackson than it is to Abraham Lincoln. Of, you know, w w which army is the Supreme Court going to use to stop me? Uh, J J.D. Vance said <laughs> the other day that that's what what Trump should do when he gets back in. So this is this is coming. All he said, hey, AJ, do what Andrew Jackson said. Well, you know, no, no, he shouldn't. And let me what just, did let Andrew, me just go on record? Well, let, no, no, he and shouldn't. And what did Andrew Jackson do? He sent he sent thousands and thousands of people out of their homes that had always been across the Mississippi River, all dying along the way. I don't think that was the right decision no. for everybody to say, oh, that's what everyone should be doing. Yeah, so. no, this was the Trail of Tears and the, the, the Cherokee and other Indian right. tribes as well uh, that were displaced by President Jackson's actions. Um, yeah, in violation of the Supreme in Court. In of the Supreme Court. So I, I do think that, but that shows that the impulse is all over. It's all over. And but but when people like a senator like J.D. Vance or somebody like Mark Tushnet are pushing this, what they're saying is, is that we don't like the constraints of the rule of law. And, well, and we don't like judicial review and we don't like judicial review. And and that is just not our system. And what you'd find, you, you know, you, you'd find that you disliked the other uh, the, the other approach a lot quicker, I have a feeling. Well, and, and it's interesting, the examples he uses, because I don't think that, that for example, uh, suppose that there were a pro-life administration, and like the last uh, okay. administration was, and that without a Supreme Court ruling, they just said, well, abortion's illegal, and we're just going to start prosecuting it. I mean, that, that would be absurd. Right. Uh, you can't have that kind of, I mean, one of the, pro uh, there are many problems with that, but one of the problems with it is just the abruptness of the transitions that would take place in the politics if these things weren't litigated in the courts. Yeah. And the reliance of all these, uh, <laughs> you know, we say all the time, can I read the statute and know what's going on? And the doctor reads a statute that's from the 1970s or 80s or 90s that's relied on this stuff. And now he's suddenly going to jail for doing something that the law says he can do. Whether you like it or not, that's not how law is supposed to work. That's right. And I, and I don't think there's any appreciation in this open letter for the, the fact that the shoe's ever going to be on the other foot. And, and we were talking about this, John, yes. with, with respect to a uh, letter that Tushnet is famous for having oh, written back in 2016. Right. And I, I told Mark, so there, he wrote on uh, the uh, balkanization blog, he wrote the end of defensive crouch liberalism. And it was all about that Hillary was now going to win this election and she was going to win it running away. And then she was going to get to appoint Scalia's uh, uh, successor and all these other people and that that we would no longer have to be worried about. And he used a, an epithet about uh, Justice Kennedy. And he did say, if and if I'm wrong, we're in 
we got worse problems, meaning that Trump will get it. So he did say that. I mean, he was he, he wasn't like there's no chance. He said it's very unlikely, but, but it would be bad. But the thing is, he said that he should treat all the originalists and all the social conservatives in this country like defeated Nazis. OK, <laughs> that they were in the same position. And I think he used Confederates and all the rest of it. And I sent this around to people and I've printed it out so it's never taken off the Internet. I'll have the hard copy. But it just galvanized people who were not Trumpy to go vote for Trump in the legal community in D.C. And now that doesn't really help you much. It's a drop in the bucket. It's a drop yeah. in the bucket. But I will say this. I have never seen so many people read something and suddenly say, I'm going to go to the barricades and I'm going to now help this guy that I didn't want to help. And these were people who had money and had legal chops and suddenly got into the fray upon reading that. And um, I, I, I bet you it did more harm for his position than good. Yeah, and so now he's gone from from Balkan to Belkin with, <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the new letter here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is there anything to be said uh, positively for Tushnet's uh, position here? I mean, do we need, well, do we need for to him, play devil's advocate? Well, for him, I will say this. It's consistent. He has been against following Supreme Court he's precedent. He's consistently for, anti-democratic? Yeah, or no. Small he's, d democratic? Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, against, he's against the constitutional system that allows elites who are the judges um, who are appointed by the Supreme Court from stopping uh, the masses taking everybody's stuff. <laughs> Is, what, is the way I kind of look at it. He was a crit back in the old days, right? And so the critical legal studies, it was all about, oh, powers holding all the property rights, and we don't like these property rights. And so- um, and, and very cynical approach uh, to, I, to lawmaking, I, I, I would say. I think, I think so too. It's, if, if, if it's all about power, then it's really not law once again. But they're, they're a little bit like the conspiracy theorists, right? Nobody has a real position. It's all the hidden uh, defense of their uh, elite position. Yeah. Um, and if you believe that, and that's very popular now, it's not just him. Like I said, J.D. Vance was saying the same thing the other day. Um, I, I do think that um, that the only thing he has, the only thing Tushnet has is he's not a Johnny come lately to this position. OK, so that's so we'll my give defense points for consistency. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I've never met uh, Mark Tushnet. I did go to, to, to college uh, or overlap with one of his daughters in, in college for for a year. And she's a very nice uh, and bright a young woman. But, um, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I just, my, my concern with his position here is just what you were saying earlier, John, that, uh, where does this lead? How do you run a country with this sort of approach uh, to the Supreme court? You're really turning the court into a non-entity if presidents are willy nilly not going to follow it. And the other thing is, I think it's intellectually dishonest. It may be consistent in the way that you're saying that he's had this view for a long time, but to treat the current Supreme Court as a MAGA Supreme Court, I think, is absurd. First right. of all, somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, he didn't come out of Trump world. He came out of Bush world. Yeah. He's not a Trumpian MAGA guy. He's just not. Right. And maybe maybe some people wish that that Trump had appointed someone else who was uh, who would have maybe more uh, been uh, susceptible to Tushnet's characterization. But but branding uh, you know, branding Brett Kavanaugh that way is silly. Branding Amy Coney Barrett that way is equally silly. She is not somebody who came up through Trump world, uh, very well-respected academic, uh, et cetera, had been on lists for regardless of who was elected in 2016. Everyone was talking about Amy Coney Barrett as the likely on the replacement side, yeah. on the Republican side as the likely replacement if Ruth Bader Ginsburg should right. retire or, or pass away, what have you. So 
it's just, I think, intellectually dishonest to brand this court. And of course, Thomas, Roberts, Alito, none of these people are Trump folks. So you're just taking the label of MAGA and which you've, well, which also, you've and let's then trying to tar this court with that Let's brush. look at Gorsuch. He's got a number of decisions where he's with Sotomayor and they make up the majority, right? Uh, certainly on Indian rights. So there's a number of things. It, it doesn't make any sense to look at the court this way. It really doesn't. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's you just said it more succinctly than I did. It doesn't make any sense. And particularly when you look at some of the rulings, I mean, uh, in our victory in the SCCV Cochrane, it was unanimous and it was written by Justice Kagan. And that was a huge blow against the administrative state. So I, I think that that he's uh, sort of uh, you know, picking and choosing uh, in a cherry picking sort of way here to make his point. And I think it's uh, frankly, highly unpersuasive. But thank you for being with us on this episode of Administrative Static. And, uh, and one, one final point I'll just say, go to nclalegal.org. Listen to John's Lunch in Law this past week with John Stauer from, uh, from the Missouri v. Biden case because it's a fantastic Lunch in Law. I don't